If you are uh, new with us this morning, I want to invite you into a study in the book of Acts. We've been taking time every Sunday walking through this book called Acts uh, of the Apostles, and it is, has been a wonderful uh, uh, journey for us as a church. And today we come to the 12th chapter, and we are going to continue to see in Acts the power of what really was testified to and proclaimed today in baptism. Uh, it is sweet every time we have a baptism in our church, particularly when I'll, I'll be, two of them are my own children. Uh, that is additionally sweet for me as a father, um, yet I don't even want to just make this about me. Um, it is sweet for every single one of us because what we see is the power of God unto salvation. Uh, what we see is the fact that in spite of all of the darkness and the sin and the question marks and the chaos of this life, that God is God and that God has the ability to save sinners. And what I want to do today is look at Acts 12, which is probably one of my favorite stories in the book of Acts. And I want to title my sermon simply, God is God. And as I read this story, I want you to kind of pick up this theme that God is God as we go. Are you with me? So let's walk through this together starting in verse 1 of Acts chapter 12, and I want to read through verse 24. It says, about that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of unleavened bread. And when he had seized him, he put him into prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending, <coughs> excuse me, to, after the Passover, to bring him out to the people. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. Now when Herod was about to bring him out on that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains and sentries before the, the door were guarding, uh, uh, were guarding the prison. Verse 7, And behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him, and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him, saying, Get up quickly, and the chains fell off his hands. And the angel said to him, Dress yourself and put on your sandals. And he did so. And he said to him, Wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and followed him. He did not know that it was being done by the, what was being done by the angel was real. But he thought that he was seeing a vision. When they had passed the first and second guard... They came to the iron gate leading into the city. It opened for, uh, for them of, their, of its own accord, and they went out and went along one street. And immediately the angel left him. When Peter came to himself, he said, Now I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. When he realized this, he went into the house of Mary the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. 
And when he knocked at the door of the gateway, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer, recognizing Peter's voice. In her joy, she did not open the gate, but ran in and reported that Peter was standing at the gate. They said to her, you are out of your mind. But she kept insisting that it was so, and they kept saying, it is his angel. But Peter continued knocking, and when they opened, they saw him and were amazed. But motioning to him, to them with his hand to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had brought him out of prison. And he said, tell these things to James and to the brothers. Then he departed and went to another place. Now when day came, there was no little disturbance among the soldiers over what had become of Peter. And after Herod searched for him and did not find him, he examined the sentries and ordered that they should be put to death. Then he went down from Judea to Caesarea and spent time there. Now Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon. And they came to him with one accord, and having persuaded Blastus, the king's chamberlain, they asked for peace because their country depended on the king's country for food. On an uh, appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes, took his seat upon the throne, and delivered an oration to them. And the people were shouting, The voice of God and not a man. Immediately an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give God the glory. And he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. But the word of God increased and multiplied. Let's pray. Father, we ask that as we work through this text this morning, that you would show us that you indeed are God, not King Herod, not any one of us today, not any ruler today, but you are God. Open our eyes to the truth in this text. Help me as I preach that I would preach your word, not mine. Give us ears to hear, hearts that would be receptive. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. A man was complaining to his friend about the fact that his, his wife uh, was always bossing him around. And so his friend said, look, you've got to show her who is boss. And he said, when you go home today, tell her who's boss. Tell her what you want. So the man went home, slammed the door, called for his wife, and he said, listen, from now on, when I come home, I want dinner on the table. When, I go, when I'm going out, I want my clothes laid out on the bed. And when I put my tie on, you know who's going to be tying my tie? And she said, yes, I do. The undertaker. <laughs> Look, fellas, you want to try your wife? <laughs> we're, we're coming from a text here about a man who tried the authority of God and who basically said, let me tell you who's boss. And not only does God demoralize this man, but God takes this man's life. I want to preach to you, like I said, on this topic, God is God. 
there's a new character that's introduced to us in Acts chapter 12, and his name is King Herod. His great grand, or I'm sorry, his grandfather, his grandfather was Herod the Great. This is the guy who, when Jesus was born, he decided to kill all of the babies to and under in the land to try to stomp out this new king. This Herod, his grandson, comes from them. There's a long family history of violence and arrogance and authoritarianism and pride. Dominance. He wants dominance. And actually, dominance has been granted to this man by the Roman Empire. He's been given, by this time, a whole lot of territory that is sort of his authority. And so dominance kind of becomes his middle name, and he wants to show the world just how dominant he is. Now, as Acts has been going on, the church has been growing in other parts of the world, like Antioch, for instance, in the previous chapter. We're going back now to the church in Jerusalem, and what we see in Jerusalem is that they are suffering. They're suffering because of this man, Herod the king, who wants to just show how powerful he is. And what he discovers is that if he persecutes the Christians, he gets the applause of the people. And so he starts picking on church members. Two two in particular that he picks on are two apostles named James and Peter. So look at verse 2. The story moves quite quickly. In verse 2 it says he killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. You, you remember James and John in the Gospels. These are the two brothers who come up to Jesus and they say, hey, when you enter into your kingdom, can we sit on the left and on the right? And Jesus is like, you guys don't even know what you're talking about. He asks them a question. He says, are you able to drink the cup that I'm about to drink from? Are you able to be baptized with what, what I'm about to be baptized with? And they're like, oh yeah, absolutely. And then he, he actually tells them, you will be baptized with what I'm going to be baptized in. You will drink the cup that I am about to drink. And what that meant for Jesus was suffering and death in this world for the sake and the glory of God. And here we see the first apostle put to death, martyred. That comes true for James as King Herod's sword meets him. And he, he dies. Now, I want to draw out some points here as we think of this theme that God is God. And my first one is simply this. That if God is God, if God is God, therefore, number one, the deadliest threats are manageable. The deadliest threats are manageable. Now, don't get me wrong. Nobody particularly likes a death threat. I've had them myself. One in particular, I kind of got into a situation and got a little threat. Montreal was with me and we kind of had to smooth it out a bit. and It was okay. But it wasn't comfortable. We're not looking for death threats. 
But death is not the worst thing that can happen to the Christian. So, for example, in the year 166 A.D., a man named Justin Martyr was truly facing uh, the loss of his own life for his faith, and he looked at Emperor Marcus Aurelius, who was about to have him slaughtered, and this is what Justin Martyr told Marcus Aurelius. He says, you can kill us, but you cannot really do us any harm. Listen, listen, death is not the worst thing that can happen to the believer. See, some people think that if a believer dies, it must have been a sign that God was against them. If God was for them, they would have lived a long and prosperous life. But James is dead. He died. What does that mean? Well, to say that you would live a long life if God is for you sounds a lot more like the false gospels of the world or the prosperity or the health and wealth gospels than it does the actual gospel of the Bible. God doesn't promise a long life in this world. In this situation, I'm jumping forward a little bit, but Peter is about to escape death, whereas James dies. Was one more God-honoring than the other? The text doesn't say that James was worse than Peter, or Peter was better than James, and that's why Peter was spared, but James got the axe? No. You see, God can glorify Himself through saving your life, prolonging your life, and God can also glorify Himself through your death. And so in this situation, we see God glorify Himself in both ways, through life and through death. Now, how do I know that God is glorifying Himself through the death of James? It's very subtle in the text. But let me point something out to you. Previously, when they were down to 11 apostles, they had to replace Judas Iscariot with another apostle uh, to, get to, to get to 12 apostles. They needed 12 apostles. Now, as James dies, they don't replace James. What's, what's the point of that? Well, if you skip all the way forward to the book of Revelation, what you see is that these 12 apostles are going to be raised as the foundation of the kingdom of God. Meaning, James' story is not over. His time in this world has come to an end, but God is going to raise James up from the dead and live forever with God. We sing this song often, which says, Crown Him the Lord of life, who triumphed o'er the grave and rose victorious in the strife for those He came to save. His glories now we sing, who died and rose on high, who died eternal life to bring, and lives that death may die. We can face death in this world because Jesus raises the dead. I love that line of another song that we sing, Oh, praise the name. The line says simply this, And I will rise among the saints, my gaze transfixed on, on Jesus' face. The deadliest threats are manageable because God is God. Secondly, the world's strongest are vulnerable 
because God is God. The world's strongest are vulnerable. So we see here, James is killed by Herod. And verse 3, Herod gets giddy. It says in verse 3, when he saw that it pleased the Jews. This is sort of like the bully that knocks somebody down on the playground and everybody laughs and they applause him and he realizes like, ooh, I kind of like this. And then he goes over and knocks somebody else down. As soon as King Herod realizes that this sort of behavior gets him worldly applause, what does he do? He says, I'm going to kill somebody else. So he finds Peter, and now he arrests Peter. He proceeded, it says in verse 3, to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of the unleavened bread. So Peter is now locked up himself. And Peter is facing imminent death. You might ask this question, why didn't he kill Peter right away? Well, the author actually tells us. He says it was during the time of the, the feast of the unleavened bread. This is holiday season. And according to Jewish culture, it was not cool to kill somebody during the holidays. The Feast of Unleavened Bread lasted seven days. And so Peter was thrown into jail during this time, and he has to now wait in prison uh, before Herod can bring him out and, and kill him. In verse 4, it says Herod intended to bring him out before, uh, uh, to the people after the Passover. That is code language for execution. To bring him out to the people. To do to him what he did, just did to James. Now, Peter then is sitting in a dark dungeon cell waiting for the inevitable. This is a dreadful moment. Waiting. The inevitable. What should have happened didn't. But it's still going to happen. And it's inevitable that it's going to happen. And here you sit, just waiting for the worst to happen. He finds himself in an impossible situation. Peter is going to die. He has seven days to sit in his dungeon cell and think about the fact that he is going to die. Now, the world's strongest have come against Peter here. What the text tells us is that King Herod has, has uh, uh, taken four squads of soldiers in verse 4 to guard Peter in prison. This is like the ancient world version of Alcatraz. They, they treat Peter as if he is uh, a... a public enemy as if he is a terrorist and they throw four squads of soldiers around him he's chained to two different soldiers he's not going anywhere he is facing the inevitable peter is going to die are you tracking with me however peter is trusting god now peter doesn't know what you know already Peter doesn't know that he's going to be released. Like sometimes we read these stories knowing the end and we forget the fact that they didn't know the end while they were living the story. For all Peter knew, he was going to what? Die. You see, sometimes we think, God, I will serve you if you get me out of this situation. If you can kind of reverse this impossible situation, then I will definitely trust you. 
Just prove yourself first. No, Peter trusts God in the waiting. He trusts God in waiting for the inevitable to happen. You say, well, how do you know he was trusting God? Well, I know he was trusting God because in verse 6 it says he was sleeping. This is the night before his execution. And he's sleeping. Sleeping in the Bible is always a sign of trusting in God. Psalm 127 verse 2 says God gives sleep to his beloved. Listen, church. Trust God in the midst of the waiting. And don't make any deals with God. If you get me out of this, then I will trust you. No. Know that in the midst of all of the chaos, in the middle of that dark night, you can rest well. You can sleep. You can trust God. Because God is God. And if God was still God when James was killed, God is still going to be God when you're killed. Now, second piece, though, is the impossible is not impossible for God. There is no situation that is impossible for God. It might be impossible for me, but it's not impossible for God. First, the world's strongest are vulnerable before God. As we consider our own work as we consider our own lives before God, what impossible situations might you be facing? Like, what are some things that you feel like led to do, called to do, you desire to do, and you've examined your motives and they seem to be godly motives, but it just seems impossible? I mean, for us as a, as a church, I think getting into our own building so we can spread out and have more ministry space Honestly, it feels like an uphill battle and impossible at times. Someone might, might say, my marriage, fixing my marriage just seems impossible. Or going back to school, or paying off debt, or buying a home. And then someone might say, well, aren't these just worldly things? Well, yes, God cares about the regular. Like, every aspect of your life, God cares about that. Uh, there is no regular dilemma that you face in life that God is not sovereign over and can, listen to this, overcome. If it is good for you. You know? Like, so for instance, uh, for some people, paying off debt, that seems pretty regular. Paying off debt, though, can be a very godly thing and allow you to have more financial freedom to be generous. You know, getting in a home. Of course, everybody wants to get into a, a nice place, but that could be a tool that you could use for ministry. Amen, Tony? <laughs> There's no ordinary dilemma that you face that God cannot overcome if 
It is good for you and will bring him glory. So look what happens with Peter. He's got four squads around him. He's in a deep sleep and an angel comes along and whacks him on the side of the head. He's got to be a little perturbed in this moment. Like, are you serious? I was just dreaming. You know what I'm saying? He's, he's chained to two different soldiers. The angel wakes him up. In verses 7 and 8, it says that this dungeon in which he's in is lit up. He looks around and it's bright. Yet the guards are all asleep. And the angel tells Peter, get up. Get yourself dressed. Get your shoes on. We're walking out of here. And so, so, so Peter gets up. And as he gets up, the chains fall off his wrists. And he goes past the first guard. And then he goes past the second guard. And then they get to this iron gate, which would be the last and final obstacle to get out of this prison cell. And the text tells us that the gate just simply opens up on its own accord. And he walks out. An impossible situation. Facing his imminent death. And now Peter finds himself in the streets. And he turns around and the angel is gone. He doesn't even realize what's going on. And at the same time, there's a church back in Jerusalem in a house that is praying for him. God does... The impossible. Look at verse 11. It says, Behold at that very moment. Or I'm sorry, wrong verse 11. When Peter came to himself, he said, Now I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. The world's strongest are vulnerable before God. But secondly, let me turn the corner a little bit. The, the, the devil's strongest are also vulnerable before God. I mean, this is a picture of the spiritual reality, right? If the world's strongest are vulnerable, how much more are the devil's strongest vulnerable? There's a, another hymn that we sing often in this church. One of the lines, or one of the whole verses, is inspired by this text. I wonder if you know which hymn it is. He says, long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin and nature's might. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I woke, the dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off. My heart was free. I woke, I went forth, and I followed thee. If God has the power to break the shackles of human oppression, God has the power to break the shackles of spiritual oppression. No soul then is too far into sin that God cannot save. Like there is no sinner in your life that you know that you're praying for, pleading uh, for, on, on, uh, that, that God would open their eyes to the Gospel that God can't save. Because God can do the impossible. Sinner. Are you bound to your sin? The crazy thing about spiritual bondage is that you don't even know it. 
You think you're living the good life. You think you are free. You think you are, uh, are, 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 are living it up. But the reality is, is that we are in chains to our sin. And you are one night away. One night away from facing the judgment of God. What hope do you have in your sin? Let me tell you the hope that you have in your sin. It is that Jesus Christ lived a life completely freed from the shackles of sin and death. He lived a life of utter righteousness before God. The life that you and I should have lived. And when Jesus died on the cross, the the penalty, the sword, from not the world, but from God Himself, judgment for sin, came down on Christ. The the same judgment that should have come down on you came down on Christ. And it crushed Him. It killed Him. Three days later, He rose from the dead. And all who turn from their sins and trust in Jesus Christ have this experience in which the lights come on. The chains fall off. And they arise. And they go forth. And they follow Him. Has the light broke through your prison walls? Have the chains fell off? Church, arise. Go forth. And follow Him. Praise the Lord. What a Savior Jesus Christ is. God can do the impossible. Now, because God is God, all right, not only can we face death, not only is the world's strongest not strong enough, but thirdly, because God is God, our worst prayers are capable. Our worst prayers. You see, in this text, twice Peter is being prayed for. We see it in verse 5. As Peter is locked up, it says the earnest prayer was made by the church. In verse 12, after Peter is released, he goes to the house and he finds them in their prayer meeting. Let me ask you a question. Do you believe in the power of prayer? Are we a praying church? Do we as a church believe in the power of prayer? Individually and also together. You see, when when Peter, or when the church as a whole, faces a crisis here in Acts 12, what do they do? This is the middle of of the night and they're having a prayer meeting they're they're praying together like not just individually they're not just saying hey everybody on your own you know when you do your devotional time remember Peter he's gonna die tomorrow (laughs) but they are together in a prayer meeting pray individually church and pray together. That's how we show that we depend on God is, is through our, our prayer. Do we believe in the power of prayer? Colossians 4.2 says, devote yourselves to prayer. Be watchful and thankful. Philippians 4.6 says, do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, 
with thanksgiving, present your, your requests to God. Romans 12, 12 says, Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. Hebrews 4.16 says, Let us then approach God's throne with grace, with confidence, so that we might receive mercy and face, or I'm sorry, and find grace to help us in our time of need. We are called to pray. But, but I said, here's my third point, I said even our worst prayers are capable. Now why do I say our worst prayers? It's because sometimes we think that we have to muster up a really good prayer in order for God to do something because God alone isn't God, i got to kind of help Him with my power in my prayer. I have to have enough faith and enough confidence and enough emotions in my prayer in order for it to get above this ceiling to the ears of God. In order to somehow activate His power. I mean, people teach this and believe this. We've had a, a young lady in our church, and I'll share her story because she shared it publicly, a young lady in our church who has a health problem, and she has a number of family members who have told her, your health problem continues because you have not asked in faith. And if you have enough faith in your prayers, then God would heal you. The church here in Jerusalem as they're praying is praying with zero confidence that their prayer will be answered. Like these are not their best prayers, these are their worst prayers. I mean, let's give them props for the fact that they were meeting. But they did not think that God was going to actually answer their prayers. So in verse 15, we, we find that Paul, uh, Peter is released. He shows up at the prayer meeting. And a young servant girl named Rhoda hears the knock on the door. She goes to the door and she sees that it's Peter. And she's like, oh my goodness. They are praying for him right now that he might be freed from prison. And he's at the front door. So Rhoda gets excited. She goes back to the, to the prayer meeting. She's like, hey, Peter's at the door. And they're like, shh. We're praying. Close your eyes. And she's like, no, no, like Peter's at the door. They're like, we are praying for Peter right now. You're out of your mind, they tell her in verse 15. You're, you're insane. You're crazy. You've lost your mind. We wouldn't be praying for Peter to be released if he was at the door. And she's like, no, he's like seriously at the door. And then they come with, her, with this one, they say, it must just be his angel. Like They are more likely to believe that it's Peter's angel at the door than the fact that God actually answered their prayers. You see what I'm saying? Like they're praying without confidence that God is going to answer the prayers and God still answers the prayers because God is God. And God can take a confused, simple, uh, 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 faithless prayer that has no confidence behind it, and He can say, you know what? That prayer is going to be effective because I'm God. That's how God works. Listen, there are going to be some times in your life 
when you offer up the worst prayer. You're praying about some situation, and even as you pray, you just don't think God is going to answer your prayer. I want you to have confidence that even in that moment, God is still God. And God can hear the prayer of His child who's asking with a lack of confidence and answer that prayer. Now, James says pray with faith, doesn't he? Chapter 1, James chapter 1, he says, pray with faith. But why do we pray with faith? He says, pray with faith so that you will not be blown away, tossed away by the waves. We, we pray with faith for our sake, not for God's sake. So yes, pray with faith. Pray with uh, believing that God can do what God can do. Pray with confidence for your sake so that you might remain rooted in faith in God. But God is God. And God can answer even our worst prayers. Amen? Now, with that said, my last point here, all of that to say, human boasting then is deplorable. Human boasting is is deplorable. Deadliest threats are manageable, are the world's strongest are vulnerable. Our worst prayers are capable. And because God is God, human boasting is therefore deplorable. So King Herod, in this story, chapter 12 of Acts, King Herod loses Peter. He freaks out. He has his own soldiers killed. I mean, he's completely demoralized. In verses 18 and 19, the guards are put to death. Now the text closes in verses 20 through 23, and I've got to tell you this story because it makes my final point. In verses 20 through 23, we see a little little side note. Luke is just telling us something about King Herod's reign. And in verses 20 through 23, we see that that, uh, Tyre and Sidon, these, these countries were dependent upon... King Herod for their food supply. And I don't know what happened, but they get into it with Herod. And as a result, Herod cuts off their food supply. And so the king's chamberlain, his right-hand man, comes uh, groveling to King Herod and basically just wants to make peace in any way that he can possibly make peace so that they can eat. We see here that King Herod had so much power. He had so much authority. He could control the meal plants for entire countries. The next scene happens, scholars say, either on Herod's birthday or it could potentially have happened at the games. Some big ceremony is taking place and Herod appears in all of his glory. It says uh, that he puts on his royal robes. The year is 44 A.D. It's a historic year. Historians know this, and it's one of the ways that they are able to actually track the chronology of Acts. He appears in his royal robes, all of his glory, and he sits on his throne. And there are crowds all around in this moment. In verse 22, it says, The people were shouting, The voice of God and not a man. 
Most likely it was some kind of chant that they were saying over and over. The voice of God and not a man. The voice of God and not a man as Herod takes his place in his glory. Now, do you remember just a few chapters earlier in Acts, Peter was declared to be a god? Peter, the one that Herod just tried to kill, was declared to be a god. And do you remember Peter's response? Peter said, yo, I am just a mortal. Get up. Don't give me that. Well, Peter versus Herod. Herod receives the applause of the world. He receives it. He delights in it. And he loves it. Herod believes himself to be invincible. Look at verse 23. Immediately, an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give God the glory and he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. It says, because he did not give God the glory. Church, Herod died because he did not Give God the glory. Throughout this whole text, God is saying, I am God, not you. You want to kill James? I'll raise him up one day. You want to put Peter in prison? I'll just release him. You want to call yourself immortal? You want to receive that kind of uh, uh, glory? I will show the world right now just how mortal you are. You see, the reason that we don't believe that God is God is because of our own pride. It's in our pride that we don't pray. It's in our pride that we worry and fret and have fear. It's in our pride that we believe that we are invincible. And someone's going to say, well, I don't think I'm invincible. And I would say, then why do you sin? Every time we sin, it is an affront against God. It is a statement of our own ability to stand up against God. Is this not part of the human condition? You see, Adam was told to not do something, and Adam said, I think I can get away with it. I think I can stand up to God. And this is our story of sin in this world. Every time we disobey God, we are challenging God's authority, and we believe that we can get away with disobedience. I don't know if you've ever felt like you were on cloud nine, and everything was going well, and you really felt just kind of invincible. I can take on anything. Is this not the sin that Herod committed? We've got to identify church. We've got to identify just a little bit here with Herod. The one who believed that he was better than God. No, God is God. Herod is not. God is God. The government is not. God is God. The kings of this world are not. God is God. The rulers of this world are not. God is God. You are not. God is God. I am not. Now, Peter, in verse 17, he instructs 
the, the prayer meeting, the, the church there in Jerusalem, he says, guys, quiet down. They're hunting me. Don't make much of a uh, noise about this right now. Can you please just go tell James and, and the other brothers what has happened? You see, Peter wants them to know that even though things are not looking good in Jerusalem, even though things are very bleak right now, that God is still God. When all is dark, God is still God. When the Hebrews were in Egypt and all was dark, God was still God. And God showed Pharaoh that he was God as he parted the rivers and led his people out of bondage. When Israel went into captivity in Babylon and all was dark, God was still God and God showed Babylon that he is God as he closed the mouths of lions so that they didn't eat a young man and he stood in the fire with three other young men. And when all the kings of Israel failed and all was dark, God was still God. And God showed the world that He is God as He sent His only Son into the world, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And when the world nailed Jesus to the cross and all was dark, God was still God. And God showed the sinner that He is God as He turned the powers that be on their heads and accomplished our salvation. And when Jesus lay in the grave and all was dark, God was still God. And God showed death that He is God as He rolled the stone away and Jesus stood to conquer the grave. And when the church was huddled in an upper room and all was dark, God was still God. And God showed them that He is God as He sent His Spirit and ignited the church to blaze His glory and to send His good news to the ends of the earth. And when you were dead in your trespasses and in your sins, when you were pursuing your flesh and you were loving the world and all was dark, listen, God was still God. And God showed you that God is God as He called your name and the dungeon flamed with lights and your chains fell off and your heart was free and you rose and you went forth and you followed Him. And when your life felt broke, your heart was broke, your marriage was broke, your resilience was broke, and all was dark, God was still God. And God reminded you that He is God. As He woke you up the next day, as He walked with you through the tribulation and gave you a peace that passes all understanding. And one day, church, when your body finally gives out, when you breathe your last and you lay on that deathbed and all is dark, God will show the world that He is God as one day you are raised to endless life to live together with God apart from even the presence 
of sin. So church, let's give God the glory. When all seems dark, God is still God. To God be the glory. Great things He has done. So loved He the world that He gave us His Son who yielded His life, an atonement for sin, who opened the life gates that all might come in. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. God is God. We are not. Give Him glory. Amen? Pray with me. Father, we thank You for the fact that You are God. And I thank You, God, for the fact that that is good news for us. Because You have included us in Your heritage through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Thank You for saving us. Thank you for being God. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.